It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today we are reading chapters 90 through 93 of Moby Dick. Oh, that was a really nice and sedate opening. <laughs> Unlike usual for, for recent times. We've, we've had very hectic podcast openings, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, this time I did remember my own name. <laughs> so, yes. I wasn't bringing that up explicitly. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was explicitly not bringing that up. Okay, maybe not explicitly not bringing that up. That would be bringing it up. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Sure. Anyways, uh, yeah. Um, we got some chapters. Oh, I do want to say before this that I had a bit of a whale experience. Yes, let's talk about your recent whale experience. So, uh, between the last time we recorded and now, I uh, went to California for a wedding. It was the first time I've ever been in California. It was really nice. Saw a bunch of pelicans. Uh, you know, saw some very nice ocean vistas, and I also saw the beached carcass of a whale. A baleen whale, not a sperm whale. Yeah. Um, it, I, I saw the pictures. It's... A lot? It's hard to, like, believe that it's a real object in those photos, I find. Yeah, no, but um, it was definitely real. I When we were walking down the beach towards it, it was this big reddish thing. And my first thought was, oh, that's like a chunk of wood from, like, one of the big redwoods or something they have around here. That's like driftwood. That's why there's that weird marbled red color on it. And then going up near it, um, this is a bit of a gory detail, though it's so past being gory. Um, like, there's a section where the, the blubber had been stripped away and, like, there were there was stuff in it. It looked like weathered wood. Like, it was gray and layered and weathered. And I'm sure that was, you know bones and cartilage and so on that had been wet beaten down on by the sun um because the whole thing had been stripped it was you know the blubber was reddish and was peeling off in strips in some places horrible to be short yeah yeah i mean you know like i whales beaching is a a very upsetting natural phenomenon yep uh though you know it's entirely possible this one died before it was uh rolled up on the beach we just don't know or at least I don't know. I'm sure that a, a cytologist would be able to tell us more. Um, but it clearly been lying there long enough that the seabirds had sort of given up on it. Damn. Yeah. And it was really weird coming up to it. It's just like this huge, bizarre thing. And I'm like, wait, is this, a, is this a squid? What the hell is this? And then I see the flukes. And I'm like, oh, this is a whale. It has the horizontal flukes, which are visible in one of the photos. Wait, so you said that it was definitely a baleen whale. How did you know that? So my dad was the one to point it out, and it's that they it has a long, pointed uh, face. Mm. Whereas a uh, sperm whale or a um, killer whale have a, like, much more rounded snout. Mm. Um, it had, like, that long structure to the head that the baleen whale has. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And mm. also, like, I, to be clear, it is, I think, evident from the photos that it's not a sperm whale, probably, yes. just because of, like, the size of it. Yeah, the size and the shape are entirely off for one of uh, Melville's great leviathans. Uh, 
Still distressing to see it dead, but, you know, it was it was a fascinating piece of the more unpleasant side of nature. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, so, yeah, that was my, that's my um, moderately upsetting whale content. And good news, it's relevant to these chapters. Yeah, it's true. Both, both uh, beached whales and, like, long dead whales are part of these chapters. Yep, yep, we got some whale carnage. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but, yeah, uh... I don't know, if you have questions about my experience with a whale carcass, get at me on Twitter, I guess. Weird way to start this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, let's let's get into chapter 90, um, which is titled Heads or Tails. So, I cannot read Latin. I'm bad at it. But yeah, so I'll try. Do you want to read the Latin inscription? Oh, yeah, I guess I can read the actual text of it and then also give you a translation. So, this chapter opens with, like, an epigram or ep- epigraph. One or the other. Forget which one of those words means which thing. I think an epigram is like one or two words or something. Like No, I think I think an epigram is like a saying and an epigraph is a quotation at the beginning of a thing. Oh. I think. I can never remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is it opens with a quotation. Um, De Belena vero sufficit si rex habeat caput et regina caudam. Uh, which... This is not like a totally literal translation, but PowerMobyDick.com translates this as meaning the king owns the head of a whale, the queen owns the tail. Um, which I I did Latin in like uh, high school, and so I kind of can tell that that's not like exactly what this says word for word, but it also I can also tell that that is like basically what it means. So I'm not going to bother trying to be more literal about it, because yeah, I need fair. to look up... I would need to look up some of these words. <laughs> I have never done Latin, so I'm that, just going to trust you. In that way, you are superior to me. <laughs> um, anyway, this is, this is, and... Uh, the first line of the chapter, even, it, past that is, Latin, from the books of the laws of England, which, taken along with the context, means that of all whales captured by anybody on the coast of that land, the king, as honorary grand harpooner, must have the head, and the queen be respectfully presented with the tail. Which is really editorializing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this 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 seems to be so, and and, and this this sentence is quoted from PowerMobyDick.com tells me a quote from the writings of English jurist Henry de Bracton. The the Latin bit, not the yes, description not not of it the Ishmael. Yeah, yeah. The Latin is from that, and uh, this is a um, a medieval writing from like the twelve hundreds. Um, mm-hmm. which, you know, does not mean that it wasn't, uh, the law of England in the time this was writing, because that's how... Laws work? That's how English law specifically works. Well, like, that's, that's how any long-lasting, you know, legal system works. They'll just have stuff sitting around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that, like, yes. I mean, yes, basically that's true. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, this is, uh, Ishmael basically presents this as kind of like a, a special case um, compared to the, like, general rules of fast fish and loose fish. Yeah, um, he does also specifically mention, and I think it's funny, that, um, uh, now the head and the tail may not sound like, you know, you're taking the entire whale, but actually, if you look at a whale, it just, the head and tail merge into each other, so there's nothing in the middle, it's like splitting an apple in half. Yes, um, yeah, so the effect of this seems to be that any whales captured on the coast of England belong entirely to the crown yes the the i think this was actually mentioned in an earlier chapter as well that whales are considered to belong to the crown in england yes um 
and he has he immediately rolls into a story of the previous two years so like 1849 1850 or so yeah a recent event um yes here's ishmael with the hot news of the mid 1800s <laughs> yes uh in which uh, supposedly um and i i don't think we have any way of knowing whether this was a real event that happened or not um I can certainly imagine that, that Melville made this up to, like, make this point. But I also wouldn't be surprised if it is, in fact, the case that, like, yeah. whales captured on the coast of England in the 1800s were, in some cases, claimed by the Crown. I Yeah, it uh, seems entirely believable to me. Yeah. Anyway, um, so supposedly what happened was that um, some, uh, you know, some English sailors, uh, sp- you know, spotted a whale off the coast uh specifically of the 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 sank ports which is a again powermobydick.com tells me a series of coastal towns in kent and sussex england so this is like kind of a he's not able to describe precisely where this happened just sort of the general coast he says it's you know samira's of dover or sandwich or some one of the sink ports so it's he's suggesting that it's some some region like that well i think um that dover and sandwich are I, i think that dover and sandwich are Two parts of, of the, the presumably ports. five sink ports. Y- yeah. Um, yes, yes, they, yes are. they are. They totally yep, are. You're so, totally so yeah, they, they, he's basically saying it took place in this general region. Uh, I don't know specifically where. Yeah. Um, or doesn't care to detail specifically where. Yes. Uh, and they 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 spotted a whale off the coast and they successfully killed and beached it. Uh, and then some like uh, agent. Of the Lord Warden of the Sank Ports, who at this time was uh, specifically the Duke of Wellington. Uh, and presumably that's specifically, yeah, that's uh, Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, uh, who was the famous commander who defeated Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, so uh, very, very famous general of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, anyway, some agent of his came up to these whalers and was like, oh, actually, I'm taking this, or rather... You know, the the Duke is taking this whale. Um, yeah, although there's a very strong implication that the uh, the Lord Warden, who uh, who's, um, it's called a sinecure, but actually the Lord Warden uh, makes his own, you know, can make his own riches from it by pocketing things on behalf of the Duke. Uh, no, the Lord Warden is the Duke. They're the same person. Oh, oh. Yeah. The Lord Warden is like a title. Oh, sorry. I that thought it was the... Wellington holds. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it's the, sorry, I misunderstood which was the agent and which yeah. was the, which was agent and which was principal. <laughs> yeah, no, in fact, the thing that he says here about the sinecure is, um, uh, by some writers, this office, meaning the office of Lord Warden, is called a sinecure, but not so, because the Lord Warden is busily employed at times in fobbing his perquisites, which are chief, which are his chiefly by virtue of that same fobbing of them. So a sinecure is, um, like a... Just a, a totally uh, nominal, a nominal position, which yeah. doesn't require you to do anything, and you just draw money for doing nothing. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, then his argument is like, oh no, he doesn't get money for doing nothing, because he's very busy taking money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a very active kind of sinecure. Yes. Where you can get whatever you can grab, which yes. very much fits with the doctrine of fast fish and loose fish. Yes, um, and and so uh, this uh, you know this agent of his walks up uh, to these poor sunburnt mariners, barefooted and with their trousers rolled high up on their ely legs. Yes. Which, what do you think an ely leg is like? 
I mean, I think it just implies that their legs are, like, damp and therefore slimy. I guess so. That was how I interpreted it. Yeah, no, that that seems reasonable. I just wanted to to check. <sighs> anyway, uh, and and they kind of like, uh, like, sadly and and with confusion, ask several questions about what exactly is going on here. As the agent seizes the whale, and he just repeatedly insists, like they just keep asking, like, wait a minute, but but the Duke didn't catch this fish, and. We went to all this trouble, and and to every one of their questions, uh, the this agent just repeats, "It is his. It is his." Over and over again. Yep, yep. Um, is the duke so very poor as to be forced to this desperate mode of getting a livelihood? It is his. Yeah, and it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I thought to relieve my old bedridden mother by part of my share of this whale. It is his. Yeah, it's just like uh, it's the uh. Very obviously, as as clearly as can be underlined, it is it is being said that like these mariners, you know, went to the effort here and they need the money and they deserve it, and it's just being taken away from them by this nobleman who didn't do anything to deserve this whale. Yes, uh so um Ishmael's take on his impact, thinking that viewed in some particular lights, the case might be a bare possibility, in some small degree be deemed, under the circumstances, a rather hard one. An honest clergyman of the town respectfully addressed a note to his grace, begging him to take the case of those unfortunate mariners into full consideration, to which my lord duke in substance replied, both letters were published, that he had already done so, and received the money, and would be obliged to the reverend gentleman if, for the future, he would decline meddling with other people's business. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh... Oh, God, such a good turn of phrase at the end of that paragraph. Yes, uh, this is, honestly, this is kind of repeating the same point of, uh... This oh, no, it's, this entire chapter is repeating the same point over and over. Yes, as specifically the the question that, uh, the Mariners asked that Ben quoted, is the Duke so very poor, uh, Ishmael then in the narr- in his narrative voice says, Is this the still militant old man standing at the corners of the three kingdoms, on all hands coercing alms of beggars? Like, basically saying that he is, like an incredibly rich person begging money from people who are much poorer than he is. Yeah, and also specifically referring uh, possibly to the time uh, the Duke of Wellington came out of retirement to organize a military force to squash a potential popular uprising. Yeah, I, I'm not that's, totally that's what sure. The... So dick.com brings that up. I think, I'm not totally sure why they think that's being alluded to here, unless maybe they, maybe the... the Popular the... uprising was based in Scotland and Ireland. Uh, yeah, maybe so, because that's a, the, the three kingdoms means England, Scotland, and Ireland. Yeah. Um, I think that also maybe, uh, maybe this is also what's meant by the, the phrase, the still militant old man, right? Mm, because, yeah, Because, like, the days of the Napoleonic Wars are long gone. But uh, he's still actively involved in things, yeah. Yeah, specifically I think right. actively involved in... <laughs> Suppressing popular revolts. Yes, <laughs> quashing the people. And taking money from from poor mariners who obviously are... When you have a poor whaler, Ishmael's heart goes entirely out to him, basically, instantly. Not a bad whaler. A bad whaler he has a lot of contempt for, but a poor whaler. Yeah, a, a poor whaler who successfully caught a whale and yeah, therefore deserved it. Yeah, and like, it, you put know? in all his effort. And yeah, it's... The Protestant work ethic is alive and well in Ishmael, yeah. specifically about whales. Yes, yes. Uh, and he, uh, at the end of this chapter, he sort of goes into a little more like, okay, well, let, let's think a little bit more about this 
right that the crown has, which obviously is like delegated to the Duke of Wellington, uh, in this particular case. Well, you know, um, and, and, uh, the, the justific, he's like, okay, so the law makes it clear that the, the crown has this right, but, uh, what is Why? the, yeah, what is the justification? And, uh, he cites a different legal scholar, Edmund Plowden, uh, from the 1500s, uh, says Plowden, the whale so caught belongs to the king and queen, quote, because of its superior excellence. Uh, which, so, you know. I think Ishmael's basically willing to go, yeah, whales are pretty excellent. Yes, I mean, I do think that he is presenting that as kind of a ridiculous argument, though. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, well, uh, just because it's good, the king and queen get to have it. Um, yeah, which I mean, is Ishmael's like, not a fa- fond of kings and queens. No, no, he's not. Uh, and then he also decides to, like, investigate what's the reason why the king gets the head and the queen the tail. And uh, uh, he basically uh, can't find... Um, a good one? Yes, exactly. Yeah, like, one suggestion is that the, um, ye tail is ye queen's, that ye queen's wardrobe may be supplied with ye whalebone, according to one William Prynne. However, um, the... And, you know, he suggests, well, it's actually reasonable that the queen might want whalebone for her corsetry and, like, her backstays, but, um... Whalebone's from the head, because it's baleen. You idiots! You fools! You simpletons! Yes. Yeah, and he says uh, at the end of this paragraph, an allegorical meaning may lurk here. I have no idea what allegory Ishmael sees I mean, in this. It's, it's right after saying, but is the queen a mermaid to be presented with a tail? An allegorical meaning may lurk here, and I agree. I'm baffled. Yeah, like, that's the thing. I, I guess I get the implication that the tail makes the queen a mermaid, sort of, but I don't know what allegory would be implied by the queen being a mermaid (laughs) like i I don't know what that means yeah i have no idea none whatsoever i (sighs) ishmael's being coy in a way i don't understand and i don't like it yeah and then possibly he has no specific meaning in mind and is just saying "Eh, it could be allegorical who knows yeah that you know to be a jerk yeah uh <sighs> the last paragraph is about sturgeon, because um, apparently uh, the, the sturgeon are also considered royal property for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, I will say I love the idea that the um, uh, the whale and the sturgeon, both royal property under certain limitations, and nominally supplying the tenth branch of the crown's ordinary revenue. I'm just like so. You, but you could have listed the other nine branches. I bet that would have been interesting to compare their sizes to, like, whales and sturgeon. I, I guess. Because I... they're, like, income from crown lands, trade tariffs, dues, and other sources, according to PowerMobyDick.com. So, like, tariffs compared to, oh, by the way, you get the whale's head. Uh, I suppose. I am glad that Ishmael <laughs> does not go into uh, British tariffs in this Fair particular enough. case. Um, like, this... I don't know. This is a weird little chapter. I, I don't really find a lot in it. Uh. That's fair. That's fair. Anyways, uh, he also mentions that uh, according to um, according to Ishmael's pure inference, like no actual information on this, he assumes that the sturgeon must be divided in the op- in the same way, with the king getting the head and the queen the tail, uh, because the head of the sturgeon is undesirable and the tail of the sturgeon is desirable. Oh, is that... Because, okay, the thing he says is uh, that it seems to me that the surgeon must be divided in the same way as the whale. The king receiving the highly dense and elastic head peculiar to that fish. 
which symbolically regarded may possibly be humorously grounded upon some presumed congeniality. And so I, I think what he's saying is that the head of the king is dense and elastic. Yeah. But I don't know what the hell that's supposed to I mean. I think it's calling him a dummy. Probably. Like he's dense. Right, but how does the elastic part relate? I don't know. You're asking me to explain Ishmael? That Ishmael? Is, that's what we do on this podcast normally. We try. Yeah. The, Look, this uh, chapter is just kind of weird. It really is. And we've thankfully reached the end of it. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So... The next one has narrative in it. Yes, so, uh, this is a this is another story chapter. Yep, the, the, it also has another epigraph. Yes, or epigram. We can't remember. Yes, uh, the the first line of this chapter, he's quoting, uh, he's quoting from a book called Vulgar Errors, uh, from the sixteen hundreds. <laughs> Sorry, I just it's very Ishmael to be quoting Vulgar Errors. Well, specifically, the book was like a basically like a collection of. Like, kind of... Um, common knowledge that is incorrect. Yeah, debunking of, like, yeah, common Yeah, vulgar beliefs. in the sense of common. Yes, and and uh, it, it's it's kind of a, like, part of, you know, like, early uh, empiricism. Which, that's that's Sir Thomas Brown. Oh, yeah, yeah you know that yeah, yeah. name? Yeah, he wrote uh, the, um, uh, the, I'm forgetting it's the Hydrologia. Oh, the previous, that book that came up in the, the chapter on, uh, on, like, whale images? maybe uh he wrote that you know that line i really like about uh how great um uh great fires seem as nothing after death when but a small fire was sufficient for life for there's an invisible sun within us oh sure yeah okay uh, i think I that's think... uh i think that's the hydrologia but i might be slightly hydrotaphia that's it the hydrotaphia okay yeah so this um, is not actually anything relating to the previous chapter this no, is just no, no. A... this is just i know sir thomas brown from other things uh, if I'm remembering the name correctly, he's often described as an English author in polymath, and he's uh, he's an occultist, a generally interesting yes, and religion in the esoteric. His literary works, including um, *Religio Medici* and the *Hydriotaphia*, urn burial, or a brief discourse on the sepulchral urns lately found in Norfolk. Yeah, so you, this is true. This is this is totally the uh, uh, this is totally the the figure you're thinking about yep life is a pure flame and we live by an invisible sun within us that's the line and uh he effectively was writing about like mortality and historical forgetfulness and things that are very appropriate to ishmael so i'm not surprised that he was reading brown yes although this particular line really doesn't have any oh uh, no no no, no. philosophical I'm just, import <laughs> i'm just saying that thomas brown is cool he was a huge influence on virginia wolf weirdly enough Sure. Um, like she wrote a whole thing about how great he was and how she thought he was like the first like psychological author of the English language and a huge inspiration or a huge early sort of precursor to the modernist novel. Yeah. Anyways, uh, uh, the quotation. Sorry, I just I was just like, oh my god, it's Thomas Brown. I love Thomas Brown. <laughs> okay, so uh, the the quotation is: "In vain it was to rake for ambergris." In the paunch, it's spelled ambergris. It's not spelled ambergris. It's spelled ambergriese. In the paunch of this leviathan, insufferable fetter denying that inquiry. And this is from a part of the book, Vulgar Errors, where he just talks about a specific case where a a, a sperm whale was like captured, like the a a, a long dead sperm whale was found, and mm -hmm. uh, at least in this case, he claims it was 
in pointless vain. to it was... search for the ambergris because of the uh the stench yes both because of the stench and they didn't find any yes um and you know this is obviously this this uh suggests what's gonna happen in this chapter which is to say there's a oh this is fascinating you have denying that inquiry and i have denying not inquiry oh i don't know which is correct okay let's uh let's look up vulgar errors yeah i'm certain that vulgar errors is available online yep yep there's a yeah, link to it right this here. is actually the same uh online place where i read hydriotaphia on the uh u chicago uh website yeah, so he's uh, he's he's uh, shortened the quotation a little bit in the U uh, Chicago website. It's in it's, text, it's denying that. Yes, the text says in vain it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan. <laughs> it's spelled even a different way. As Greenland discovers and attests of experience dictate that they sometimes swallow great lumps thereof in the sea. Insufferable fetter denying that inquiry. So. Um, so he is... That's, that's very interesting, because first of all, it's got a claim about where ambergris comes from, which is very different from how Ishmael understands it. Yes, this, obviously. uh, this 1600s text seems to believe that the reason you find ambergris in the guts of whales is because they swallow it in the ocean. Yes. Um, uh, we should maybe explain what ambergris is? Well, it'll, that'll happen later in this, uh, in the chapter after this. There's a whole discussion of what ambergris is. Yeah, okay, but I mean, just, like, for the most, like, uh, basic. Because okay, okay. I, I think that Ishmael is presuming that you at least have heard of ambergris, and I don't mm -hmm. think people necessarily have. That's it's this, fair. It's a substance that can be found in the guts of sperm whales. And it's very valuable. Yes, it's very valuable. That, that probably covers us for now. Yeah, I think that's all we really need to say yeah. now. Um, <laughs> synchronized umming. But the, uh... Um, the particular, uh, Brown quotation is interesting also because, uh, I mean, first of all, I'm still boggling at the fact that there's this little typo in my version, um, which, you know, there's going to be typos in any long book. Yeah. This yeah. is just a very striking one because it's in that quotation like that. And it changes yeah. the meaning of that quotation. And I'll bet that's why it was missed because it's just in the epigraph and the meaning of the quotation is not actually that important as yeah. opposed to the confluence of ambergris and fetter. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the uh, the events of this chapter uh, take place a few weeks after... Um, well, a the... week or two, uh, oh, <laughs> it sure. specifically says. It says a week or two, yes. <laughs> after the encounter with the Grand Armada, um, and the Pequod encounters a, an unpleasant smell. Yep, just a horrible scent. And uh, Stubb suspects that this is the smell of one of the drugged whales, which has like died and you know floated up to the surface yep um and that you can uh find um find it by its smell and by uh winged uh creatures and they, they do mention just to jump ahead a, briefly that uh the sound of a the sorry not the sound the smell of a dead whale can become quite awful quite quickly and i've got to say i personally experienced that in the last few days uh I, we went up to the when we went up to the whale carcass so I could get photos. I quickly found that I had to hold my breath if I was standing downwind of it because it smelled horrible. Yeah, just incredibly rank and like you know this awful smell of decay. Um, yeah, that is that is the the horrible smell of a whale that has been dead for a while is like a major subject of this chapter. That is why I brought it up. Yeah, I'm just saying I can personally attest that this is in fact no joke it is a very real thing and it is awful yeah you have you have empirical evidence yep 
the kind that uh, Ishmael personally believes is crucial to understanding uh, whaling. Yes. Um, so, uh, as they are, you know, sailing along, uh, the Pequod encounters visually the actual source of the smell, which is to say it is like a, a dead whale um, that has been, that is alongside uh, another whaling ship, specifically a French whaler. Um, yep. There's also, we learned the term, a blasted whale. That is a whale that has died unmolested on the sea and so floated in an unappropriated corpse. So, just sort of a floating dead whale. Yeah, and it, it turns out that there are actually two uh, blasted whales uh, yep. alongside the ship. Um, I, I think they are technically both blasted whales, right? Because they're both whales that died and were then captured by the ship. Yes, but one of them had been drugged before it was blasted, and the other one uh, just died. Yeah, well, specifically, I think Ishmael believes that it died of, um, like, intestinal problems. Yeah, some internal illness. And therefore, like, uh, was, like, um... Especially bad. Well, specifically that it, like, expelled all of its oil before it died. Yeah, he specifically said that it, um... It leaves their defunct bodies almost entirely bankrupt of anything like oil. I mean, you can also see this as its its blubber like reserves getting used up as well while it's dying. Yeah, the the idea that this uh like this case of a, a dead whale that is basically devoid died of illness of, that it, well this case of a dead whale that is devoid of oil the idea that it specifically has died of like indigestion I think is like kind of a a gross speculation on oh, Ishmael's sure, part. Oh, sure, sure. But the idea that it died of illness... Yes, no, definitely. Seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, uh, I think the, the one whale died in some way due to the, the drugging and yeah, the just... stuff that the Pequot had done to it previously, and the other one just died on its own. Yep, yeah. he describes it as one of those problematical whales that seem to dry up and die. Yes, uh, and... Uh, and But both of these whales are kind of bad bets, for yeah, oil because yeah, one produce... of them just doesn't have much oil and the other one because it's a blasted whale the oil from it is going to be kind of rancid yeah exactly like it's it's been floating for long enough though it were drugged that it's turned a bit yes and, and uh, also the awful smell yes um but uh it does seem i think that ishmael is implying here with the thing that he says about how uh, about the like uh you know the 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 dried up whale that um i guess basically that if a whale dies of like illness and presumably especially of like intestinal illness that mm -hmm. means that it is especially likely to have ambergris oh yeah that's definitely what he's implying here he says you know um you know leaving their defunct bodies almost entirely bankrupt of anything like oil nevertheless in the proper place we shall see that no knowing fisherman will ever turn up his nose at such a whale as this However much he may shun blasted whales in general. So it's like, yes, it's horrible and it died of illness and it won't have any oil, but you still want to stop by it for reasons we shall see. Yes. Um, and uh, the Pequod draws up to the French ship and Stubb uh, claims to see his, his whale spade uh, still tangled up in the lines um, that are holding up the, uh, the one blasted whale because remember there was that whale that got his cutting spade uh tied to it and was like swimming through the the uh grand armada swinging the spade around in pain that had been drugged yeah 
So this is presumably that whale. Yes. Uh, and he then uh, engages in basically, you know, a paragraph of like uh, mocking the French. The, the French, the yeah. French in general, and also like specifically this French whaler. Yeah, um, Stubbs clearly kind of annoyed that they got his whale. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, but he's also definitely thinking like that the fact that they have like stooped to take this plastic blasted whale, uh, these two blasted whales, is like you know pathetic that they yeah yeah um, um but he i mean he kind of like he talks for a paragraph about how they are like lowering themselves uh to you know take these uh, worthless whales and like oh they must be like totally without oil and so yeah, on yeah he says you know um i say pass around a hat someone and let's make him a present of a little oil for dear charity's sake for oil he'll get from that drugged whale there wouldn't be fit to burn in a jail no not in a condemned cell and as for that other whale, why, I'll agree to get more oil by chopping up and trying out these three masts of ours than he'll get from that bundle of bones. Yeah, uh, but he does come to realize at the end of all of his, his little rant that there might be some ambergris in the dried up whale. Yes, um, though now that I think of it, it may contain something worth a great good deal more than oil. Yes, ambergris. I, can, I have to imagine him, like, putting his fingers together like he's scheming. Yeah. Uh... I wonder now if our old man has thought of that. It's worth trying. Uh, so yeah, he basically uh, comes up with a scheme here where he wants to get his hands on the possible ambergris in this whale. Um, so he also, um, we also get to learn a, a uh, an insult for the French from this yes. time and place. Yeah, he calls them crapos, which seems to be from the word uh, crapaud, C-R-A-P-A-U-D, which means toad in French. And it appears to be appears to be specifically a uh, term of uh, a term of the whaling fleet for uh, French whalers. Yeah, I wonder if this is like of a piece with the thing where, like, you know, in the modern day, people will sometimes call the French frogs. I have no idea. It seems entirely plausible, but uh, I gotta say, um, the the previously the dutch the germans and now the french european whalers in general get very short shrift from ishmael and yeah. from the the american whalers in general like this is a whole thing about how you know these um these french uh these these frenchmen sometimes lower their boat for breakers mistaking them for sperm whales like they see rocks catching water and they're like ahoy a whale and, uh, you know, they sail out carrying boxes full of tallow candles because they don't expect to get any oil to light their nights. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this book in general is of the opinion that any ship other than a Nantucket whaler is fairly contemptible. You know, the whalers of other nations are, certainly like merchant vessels and naval vessels are. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, in, in it. In Ishmael's effort to valorize uh, the whaling fleet, the others have definitely um, suffered. Yeah. But specifically, European whalers get, like, that, um, the Virgin, and now, uh, as we'll find out, you know, from the name of this uh, chapter, it is the Rosebud, yeah. which similarly has that connotation of, like, uh, delicate innocence and untriedness yeah i mean i think the more relevant uh connotation of the name of the rosebud is that there's the irony and that it oh, smells, it smells horrible. awful yeah um, yeah that you're you're right yes uh, but but no i i don't think you're wrong that there is a certain sense of like i don't know french delicacy uh yes. anyway um 
So, uh, because in particular, so they, they draw alongside the other uh, ship, uh, and or, or specifically, the, um, the Pequod draws alongside the other ship, and then Stubb uh, gets out in his boat. Um, yes. And uh, as he gets close to the other ship, he's able to see uh, that they have a, like, elaborate rosebud figurehead. Mm-hmm. Um, which this in particular, uh, this is, you know, one reason why I'm like, yeah, perhaps the rose thing is suggesting kind of like, you know, French aesthetics yes, because yes. it says drawing across her bow, he perceived that in accordance with the fanciful French taste. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, it goes into this extended description. Yeah. Of, of a rosebud figurehead. And, uh, and then the name of the ship is visible, which is, uh, Bouton de Rose, which, you know, means rose button or rosebud, which Stubb can't read, but he's able to put together that, you know, there's a rosebud figurehead and the name has the word rose in it. So he's like, oh, the ship is named Rosebud. Um, yep. Uh, spoilers for Citizen Kane. <laughs> Sorry. You uh, doofus. <laughs> you giant doofus. I apologized for that one as soon as I said it. Anyway, so... Uh, um, also, this was the romantic name of this aromatic ship. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so yeah, he... Um, Stubb hails the ship for an English speaker and gets the chief mate, but not the captain. The captain cannot speak English. Yeah, the uh, the chief mate is a, is a Guernsey man, and uh, Guernsey is a a part of England that's pretty close to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess all of England is close to France <laughs> in a certain sense. But don't let them hear that. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like actually on the coast. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Anyway, so, of course, the first thing uh, Stubb Stub asks dutifully is if, if they've seen the white whale, uh, and uh, the mate has not even heard of the white whale. Yeah, I gotta say, once again, in the same way as with the, uh, the German sailors, uh, if you've heard of the white whale, you are probably a more competent sailor and probably an Antucketer, or from one of those isolado countries that uh, Ishmael is, is enamored of that melville like presents well like all of the harpooners were like i've heard of the white whale do you mean that self-same white whale whereas with the dutch with the uh, captain of the virgin and the um and here the uh sailors of the rosebud the answer is white whale what yeah no, what and it's very much like okay you are not actually very good whalers if you haven't heard of the white whale yeah uh, and Stubb immediately, you know, rows back and delivers to Ahab the news that they haven't heard of the white whale, to which, you know, Ahab just, like, goes back into his cabin. Doesn't As care usual. Any- doesn't care anymore. Um, and, but now, uh, now Stubb is free to pursue his little scheme. Um, and he, like... Well, he- first he makes friends with the Guernsey man. Right. Uh, basically, he kind of, like, uh, jokes around with him a little bit about how awful everything smells and, uh... It kind of upsets the mate, actually. But but what he me- he manages to communicate with him, like, why? What are you doing with these whales? Where you're not really going to get any worthwhile oil out of them. And uh, the mate is like, yeah, I I know, but our captain is like basically doesn't know what's going on. Our captain, uh, this is his first whaling vessel, and uh, quote, he was a cologne manufacturer before, which I. So technically, I think all that means is he was a manufacturer in Cologne, the city. Yes, but I do think that the allusion to the idea that maybe he made perfume uh, is like present. Yep. Um, yep. Because there, there is a, I don't, I frequent 
multiple times in this book the phrase cologne water has come up yes in fact it's mentioned in chapter 92 ambergris yeah Um, so i i I think that uh i don't know that the word cologne all it's all on its own means means... like uh you know a scented fragrant water that you use to smell good yes but But cologne water is a thing yeah so clearly there is an association between the the city i think cologne is a city maybe it's a region it's a city i think it's a city anyway um there is an association between those things. Let us know if we're wrong about Cologne being a city, because we're not looking it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyhow, so, uh, basically, Stubb, you know, makes friends with the mate, and they hatch a scheme where, um... Yeah, and the mate specifically asks him to, like, intervene with the captain, who might listen to some, to another veteran sailor, even if he won't listen to his own mate. Yes, and, and the idea is that, uh, they're going to, in addition to, like, convincing the captain to cut it out with these, uh, useless whales... Uh, they're also going to kind of play a trick on him, where Stubb is going to make fun of him in English, and the mate is going to pretend to translate it into, like, dire warnings about how you shouldn't try to, you know... You cut into these whales. Shouldn't try to cut into these whales. And so uh, the captain will be, you know, convinced by what he thinks Stubb is saying to him, and at the same time, Stubb and the mate get to, like... Have, have a, a little laugh. fun yeah also i love these descriptions before we get to that of like the various sailors and their desperate attempts to handle the smell like yeah. the bit where some of them are like climbing up the mast for fresh air regularly some of them have um they're you know they're uh, holding like uh bits of like wood dipped in tar and holding it up to oh, wait oakum oakum's not wood is it it's some kind of like, isn't oakum, like, a fibrous thing? Yeah. I'm not totally sure what oakum is, but I think you're right. It's some kind of, Yeah, like... they're basically trying to plug their nose. Yeah, and then tar. Uh, my favorite one is the person who's taken their pipe and broken it so that the bowl is just under their nose so that they're just inhaling their own tobacco smoke constantly to try and cover up the, uh, cover up the smell. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the ship's surgeon is, like, horrified by, you know, the health risk of all of this. Um, which I feel like is, on the one hand, he's clearly afraid of, like, miasmas. Uh, but on the other hand, like... To avoid the pest is the specific phrase. Yes. Um, so, like, the fear that they're going to get sick purely from the smell of this whale uh, is a little silly. But on the other hand, it is a giant rotting corpse. Yeah, that's that's a... I think it's reasonably, like, I think this might be a health hazard. That's why I didn't touch the giant rotting corpse I found. Yeah, no. Um, good good on you. That was probably a good idea. Yep. Anyway, so the... And so this is also what inspires uh, Stubb and the Guernsey men mate's uh, scheme, is that the, well, the surgeon's afraid of the pest. Why don't we claim that's a real thing? Yes. And uh, specifically, by the way, the surgeon is hiding out in the captain's privy. Oh, Yeah, that's what geez. roundhouse means. Yep, yep. So, uh... So like that is the the like the most sanitary place he can find yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, Stubb is definitely um, also scheming against the Guernsey men, the mate. Yes, uh, because he realizes in in their conversation about their plan that the uh, the mate has no idea that there might be ambergris. Um, yes, and so basically, uh, Stubb's plan here is to, uh, you know, do what this other guy wants and help him out. In such a way as to, like, actually kind of cheat him out of this thing that might be really desirable. Yeah. Um, so, uh... There's the whole thing with the sea captain who is referenced as being a rather delicate-looking man for a sea captain with large whiskers and mustache. Yeah. Um, and, So, uh, you know, that French delicacy is definitely being presented as, like, a true stereotype here. Yes, and, uh, they, the, the, you know, the little conversation that we described takes place where... 
uh, Stubb says all kinds of, like, mean and mocking things, and then the Guernseyman translates it into dire warnings of, like, how yeah. they're all yeah. going to be infected by fever from this dead whale. Do you have a, um, do you have a favorite insult? Uh, hmm, let's see. Because I know what my favorite, uh, element of this particular, uh, conversation is. What is? It's, um, when at the end the captain, uh, offers, um, Stubb a, uh, you know, to drink with him, having warned them away, and Stubb says, uh, thank him heartily, but tell him it's against my principles to drink with the man I've diddled. In fact, tell him I must go. And the Guernseyman translates this. Oh, by the way, diddled here means, like, cheated. Uh, Guernsey, the Guernseyman, uh, translates it as, he says, Monsieur, that his principles won't admit of his drinking. <laughs> yes, it's a very, like, uh, neat little, uh, way of, of twisting what he said. Yes. Um, I, I, I like just, uh, the part where he tells the captain that he's a baboon. Yeah, that's pretty good as well. Uh, um. In fact, tell him from me he's a baboon. <laughs> anyway, so, uh... It, it's kind of funny that, like, the captain immediately takes uh, what he believes to be Stubbs' word for this. Well, but he's an American whaleman. Why would you ever distrust one when they say things about whales? Yeah, but no, I think he, I think you're right that it is on some level that he thinks that Stubb has more, like, knowledge and expertise about this sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, anyway, um, so uh, the captain is so scared of by these, like, warnings of, of uh, plague that he has the whales cut loose at once. Yes, um, and, you know, to be clear, that is also what Stubb and the Guernseymen have been angling for. Yes, um, um, and in fact, uh, the the last thing that the Guernseymen urges him to do in, uh, you know, in claiming that he's translating from Stubb uh, is that they need to drop all the boats and uh, pull the ship away from the whales. Well, because it's a total calm. Yeah, there's no wind, so if they want to get away from the whales, uh, they're going to have to row. Yeah, and if you want to um, get away from the stink. Yes, um, and so... Uh, they do, in fact, do that, and Stubb kind of, like, helpfully offers, like, oh, well, uh, I could um, attach the line from my boat to this, you know... To the lighter of the two whales. Yeah, this, You know, the this, one we could pull more easily. Yeah, the dried-out one, and, uh, you know, he uh, he pulls the whale away from the ship, uh, and then, conveniently, the wind picks up again. Well, it's um, not just convenient. He also uh, pulls by too long a line. More, He l- lets out a lot more line than he needs so that he can let it drop slack and it'll go under the water. So the whale isn't visibly tied to Stubb's boat anymore. Yes, and so basically, like, Stubb is able to... Uh, pull off a little bit of, I guess, sleight of boat, where yep, it appears yep. that he is pulling the whale away and then casting off from it, but in fact, he is uh, waiting until the ship is, you know, at, too far away to really see what he's doing, and then pulling yeah, the whale in. Yeah, he also slides in behind the uh, peckwad to do this. Yes, and... Had uh, uh, at once proceeded to reap the fruit of his unrighteous cunning. Yes, uh, and he, he basically digs around in the whale corpse with his spade and uh, does, in fact, turn up some ambergris. Yeah, there's a great metaphor here, which is, seizing his sharp boat spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea, and when at length his spade struck against the gaunt ribs, it was like turning up old Roman tiles and pottery buried in fat English loam. Yeah. Um, and, uh... Yeah, there's an actual description of what ambergris looks like here that I think is worth reading. Um, Dropping his spade, he thrust both hands in and drew out handfuls of something that looked like ripe Windsor soap, 
or rich mottled old cheese. Very unctuous and savory withal. Uh, in this case, savory referring to like the scent that it has. Yeah. You might easily dent it with your thumb. It is of a hue between yellow and ash col- color. Um, so yeah, that is... And this good friend's is ambergris. That's the next line. Yep, so that's uh, that's what ambergris is. It's this weird kind of like soft, scented... Lump. Stuff. Yeah, lump. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, he just, it's described as, you know, worth a gold guinea an ounce to any druggist. It's extremely valuable. Yeah. And yeah, God, I have to say, like, ambergris sounds disgusting. Like, I believe that it smells good. I'm, I'm not doubting that. Well, we've got an entire chapter about to go for it. Yes. Uh, but yes, no, ambergris is real weird and gross, and you, like, pull it out of dead whales uh, or washed up whales, often, like, actually rotting whales, and you can still, like, remove it from them. Uh, but... Um, I do like this mention that, you know, uh, some six handfuls were obtained, but more was unavoidably lost in the sea, and still more perhaps might have been secured were not for impatient Ahab's loud command to stub to desist and come on board, else the ship would bid them goodbye. Yeah, Ahab Ahab does not care about ambergris. Yeah, Ahab's like, okay, fine, you can get rich off ambergris, whatever, just hurry up, I need to go kill a whale. Mm -hmm. A very specific whale. Yes. (sighs) Okay. But do you think Moby Dick has ambergris? I mean, so Ishmael seems to believe that ambergris comes from whales getting sick. Uh, and I would be willing to believe that uh, Moby Dick has been hale and hearty every day of his life. Yeah, that, that seems true. But on the other hand, what kind of bizarre occult ambergris would Moby Dick produce? A whale pearl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. But... This is making me wonder, do we actually know in the real world what, like, we know that... I think we have some understanding. I think we have some understanding. I think Ambergris may be a solved mystery. Okay, well, let's let's find out, because I did not actually look this up. I want to find out what makes Ambergris Also, in it's the flammable. Digestive... Huh. Fascinating. Um. Anyway, uh... It's definitely produced in the digestive system, as uh, as Ishmael will discuss. So let's all move into ambergris while you're looking at that. So chapter ninety two is ambergris. We don't want to spend too much downtime, um, and it begins with Ishmael saying, "Now this ambergris is a very curious substance, and so important as an article of commerce, etc." And you know talks about you know historical attestations of um, discussions of ambergris and its value. But um, I just think it's very funny that we're both being like ambergris and then the beginning of the chapter is a very curious substance yeah uh it does seem like from wikipedia like we don't don't really know the like the purpose of it like we know that Mm. it comes out of the bile duct of the sperm whale uh but i don't think we know why their bodies Mm -hmm. produce it i like the theory that it's basically a lubricant for um like uh for for um squid beaks that like the sharp hard things have to be ejected from the body of the whale or like closed off as with a pearl and so ambergris is like the goo that gets extruded around that yeah that's that seems plausible and that does accord with something that we learn about Stubbs ambergris in this chapter um yep. and and ishmael says that you know only recently has it been discovered where ambergris comes from uh and you know the uh precise origin of amber is still unknown um like he says uh the precise origin of ambergris remained, like amber itself, a problem to the learned. 
Though the word ambergris is but the French compound for grey amber, ambergris, yet the two substances are quite distinct. And it's like, do, is that like a common misconception that ambergris and amber are the same thing? Uh, I mean, I can see how it would arise, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he may be kind of working here on the assumption that the people who are reading this don't really know, like, what the physical properties of ambergris are. Mm. Um, because, I mean, ambergris is a very rare substance. That is true. I, I don't think, true. like, I don't think he would be presuming that his readers had actually, like, encountered physical ambergris. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, it, it... I mean, we already kind of described that it's, like, this weird, soft, fragrant... Soft, stuff. waxy, and so highly fragrant and spicy that it is largely used in perfumery, in pastilles, precious candles, hair powders, and pomatum. I and, don't even... And in food. Uh, yeah, there's there's some mentions of it being used as, like, a very slight amount of it as a f- strong flavoring and things, or it being used to brew and rot wine. Yeah. Um... Uh... But yeah, he, you know, compares it where amber is a hard, transparent, brittle, odorless substance used for mouthpieces to pipes, for beads, and ornaments. I just think it's cool to see, like, the things amber was used for come up, like, entirely secondarily. But it's like, huh, I did not realize it was used for uh, mouthpieces for pipes. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ishmael says here that, that uh, ambergris specifically comes from sick whales. Uh, yes, he specifically is talking about the idea that... um. Uh, there's sort of a contrast between ambergris, which is used for these elaborate perfumes and, um, you know, for flavoring and so on, that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale. Yeah, um, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to be known whether... Uh, there's, like, an open question as to whether ambergris is the cause or the effect of, like, intestinal illness in whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this also leads uh, Ishmael into, like, just, you know, some toilet humor. Um, uh, what? So what are Brandreth's pills? Because he mentions that Brand- how to cure such a dyspepsia. Brandreth, Brandreth's pills are laxatives. Oh, damn it. I assume they were emetives. Emetives? Emetics? Emetics. I- Either of those things is gross. Yeah, but one is grosser than the other, to me specifically. Okay. I think a whale vomiting is good, gross humor fun, whereas a whale... Shitting itself to death. Shitting itself to death is much worse, yes. But also, the phrase, um, how to cure such a dyspepsia were hard to say, unless by administering three or four boatloads of Brandreth's pills, and then running out of harm's way as laborers do in blasting rocks. You fucking gross. Let's move on. Anyway, uh, he does mention that uh, there are like hard objects found in Stubbs Ambergris, um, which uh, are squid bits. Yeah, squid bones. Um, so S- squid beaks, basically, and I possibly, I guess, cuttlefish cuttle bones. Yeah, yeah. Although I think cuttle bones are maybe a little bit. Anyways, I don't remember. Cuttle bones are cute. It's it's weird to say that about an interior part of an animal, but you find them washed up on beaches. Okay, sure. Um. Uh, and, you know, he has some, like, uh, uh, philosophical stuff about how, like, about, you know, like, purity. very dismissive. Purity in the sense, in the, the center of, like, you know, corruption or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit worth considering. Not just being like, oh, yeah, you know, standard Ishmael. Uh, yeah, no, I, I guess I'm not saying, sorry, I don't mean to dismiss it. I just, uh. You think it's pretty straightforward? I, I, I guess. Uh, it. 
It's mostly that, like, he has been harping on the point this entire time that ambergris is, like, beautiful and expensive and, like, pleasantly scented, but it is found in the middle of, like, just the most disgusting environment. And I feel like I understand that point. Ah, you feel like he's, you know, beating this drum a bit hard. Yes. Ah. But he does have to say, you know, now that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found in the heart of such decay, is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul and Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor but raised in glory. And likewise call to mind that saying of Paracelsus about what it is that maketh the best musk. Also forget not the strange fact that of all things of ill savor, cologne water in its rudimental manufacturing stages is the worst. Think about that, Mark. Hmm? Hmm? Think okay. about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm, Paul said some things. I'm thinking about how Paracelsus said that, that, uh, that, like, excrement produces musk. I, I mean, this is actually a thing where a, str- like, a scent of intense, like, decay is often included in perfumes, like, a very yeah. small amount. I mean, that's, that is kind of what ambergris is yeah. on some level. Yeah, um, it, it's such a, it's an incredibly strong, savory scent, and by having a tiny amount of it, as I understand it, in with, um, other scents, you basically have, like, I mean, especially young ambergris as a fecal scent, like, it smells like shit, it smells like, uh, feces, and... Having a tiny amount of that kind of scent, that kind of really like dark, bad scent inside of perfumes actually gives them a richness that's sort of not immediately offensive, but really effective. Yeah, I, I, I believe this because it is common true, knowledge uh, it, in it is perfuming. true about perfume making. I don't understand it at all. It doesn't make sense to me that this should be true. Yeah, uh, I, but like, I mean, this is the historical use of ambergris, so. Yeah, and it's like even modern scents that don't need ambergris. We have synthetic, weird, heavy, rich scents. Um, they still do that in perfumes. And no, I don't entirely understand. But I get. I guess the the point is that if it's all one scent, it's just sort of cloying and overpowering. Whereas having that richness to it is like a harmony or something. It's, I, I guess it tempers it. And I will say, by the way, I I don't know. I think ambergris is still very valuable, so I think it may it still is, be used. But in... we have synthetic equivalents, the same way diamonds are still very valuable. Yes. We can make uh, similar stones in labs. Yes, yes. I mean, I suspect ambergris has slightly less of a dedicated international mercantile conspiracy to ensure its continued value, and is a little bit more like just a high-end luxury product, not a scam. But, yeah, you yeah. Know. Uh, and. Uh... Ishmael then uh, feels that he needs to move on to uh, defending whalers. Um, from the from the claim that they smell bad. Yes. like He's <laughs> like, I've already covered previously in this book the idea that whaling is like dirty. And I've said that's not true. Uh, but now I need to, to answer the claim that whales and whalers smell bad. Um, yes. Um, because, you know, uh, he's just talked for multiple chapters about how these specific whales and whalers smell awful yes um and and uh his his theory as to like the origin of this myth is that uh you know greenland whalers basically because of the like different conditions of their whaling Mm -hmm. crews don't uh process the oil on the ship they don't they don't use the process of trying out um they just chop up the blubber and stuff it in barrels and then they process it when they get back to land uh once it you know basically has 
rotted. Yes. The, the basic claim is that rather than carrying fully like cooked out oil in casks, which is basically scentless, as he argues, uh, older whalers in a different con sorry, in different conditions of whaling, um, basically, yeah, just carted around huge slabs of meat and fat, and some of that would go rancid, and you'd be able to cook that off, but the smell would be awful. Yes, um, and apparently this was especially evident in uh, the the settlement of Smearenburg, which is a real place that was, uh, you know, a, a, like an Arctic, a, a village settled in uh, in an Arctic island, you know, for the purpose of... Uh, processing uh, whales. Yeah, for the proce- for the purpose of Dutch whalers processing whales. Um, so the, the name of the city literally is, you know, like... Fatberg. Fat, fat, yeah, Fatberg. Fatberg. We all know what those are now. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and so supposedly that place, due to this, you know, the way this process worked, smelled yeah, very Yeah, and bad. also because it was constantly in operation. Like, they were constantly simmering and smoking and boiling fat, and the result is that those smells were constantly about. Whereas he's arguing that because while a whaler is sailing about... Actually processing the oil and in the tripods doesn't take that long in the course of like a... You might have 50 days of trying out in the course of a four-year whaling voyage. And the result is that most of the time, the whale ship doesn't smell of that at all. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, so his conclusion is, whales do not smell bad and neither do whalers. Um, and in fact, he even suggests that whales themselves have like a pleasant odor. Although I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where he, he's, he's just kind of saying that that's true, I think. Yeah, he's saying that he's experienced it because he's been near whales and they smell nice on the sea. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I say that the motion of a sperm whale's flukes above water dispenses a perfume as when a musk-scented lady rustles her dress in a warm parlor. And it's like, Okay, Ishmael, I get that you like the smell of very large fish mammal. Yeah. Cool. Good for you. Ah, uh, God. Also, another elephant? Yeah, he does compare sperm whales to a an elephant that was uh, presented to Alexander the Great and that was, like, scented with myrrh. Yep. Sure. Yep. yep. And he also makes the argument that obviously whales have to smell good because, uh, um... What was the actual line? Uh, nor indeed can the whale possibly be otherwise than fragrant, when, as a general thing, he enjoys such high health, taking abundance of exercise, always out of doors, though, it is true, seldom in the open air. I just gotta say, having, like, known a high school locker room, I don't think that athletes inherently smell good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I admit, swimmers probably don't have a lot of odor, because they're in water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In my experience, pools mostly smell of chlorine, not sweat, but, you know, chlorine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, there's a there's a joke that's like, uh, this is actually a pretty funny pun to me. What are you talking about? The, the joke about noses. So it's not a joke, actually. So, okay, uh, there's a... There's oh, a... I thought that was a joke about the supposed so, Jewish... Okay. So let's read the sentence so that people know what the hell we're talking about. So he's talking about saying, like, actually, whalemen don't smell bad. And so he says, nor can whalemen be recognized as the people of the Middle Ages affected to detect a Jew in the company by the nose. And you thought he was talking about the, like, physiognomic... physiognomical claim that Jews have large noses, but in he... which case the, 
you know, it's the idea... It's a pun. It's a pun, yeah. And it's it's not in good taste, to be clear. But he's actually talking about a real medieval belief that Jews smelled bad. I knew about... I knew that that was a medieval superstition. I did not realize that he was referencing that as opposed to the physiognomical one. I mean, I think that... So, I could be wrong, but I... I mean, because I think that the physiognomic idea is current at this time, whereas he's he's referring to this as like a, a debunked mm, right. medieval yeah, the, idea. It is definite. I assumed he was maybe being less racist. I, I'm not as... Like, I mean, we've talked about his relationship, Ishmael's relationship to the pseudosciences of physiology yeah, yeah, and yeah. phrenology. He's clearly kind of dubious about them, so I'm not necessarily saying He's Ishmael, not necessarily endorsing, but you're, you're right that he wouldn't just dismiss them as medieval superstition as opposed to being like a half science as he put it yes uh but but yeah i think the medieval superstition he's referring to is the photor judaicus oh i know listen medieval anti-semitism is wild i'm i'm aware it's it's a lot and it's horrible i you know i i've i've taken a a couple gra- a graduate course that touched actually i think i've taken two graduate courses that each in their own way touched on it and each time it's just like fuck yeah yeah it's it's a uh, it's a lot yeah um yeah. but you know ishmael i thought you were doing something distasteful but a little bit funny and instead you're just referencing that i mean in, in fairness he is explicitly saying that, that it's not a real thing yeah but it's but... not even like i I would give Ishmael more credit, and Melville more credit, if the anti-Semitism he were skewering was the current anti-Semitism, rather than one that has been dead for 500 years. I mean, yeah, that's that's very fair. Like, so I, I just don't think, I can't credit him with that, so therefore the satirical element of it doesn't land, and the joke is still about haha anti-Semitism. Yeah, no, this is all fair. Like, um, it's, you have, know, have... I'm not canceling Melville over this. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I mean, if I you're going to do that, do it with the next chapter. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, also, have, have, has Can the... we cancel Stubb? <laughs> Stubb is already canceled. <laughs> That's true. Um, has, has the idea, like, has, have there been any mentions of, like, Jews or Judaism in the I narrative? Mean, there's Other been mentions than... of, like ancient hebrews yeah so that yes like moses has been mentioned or whatever yeah but um um and jonah obviously yeah i just feel like we had a conversation at one point about whether we thought that uh jews would be included in the sort of like at one point we had a conversation about whether the kind of quote people of the book framework was Mm, part of this yeah Uh, and i don't think we've gotten like an answer on that yet really um, yeah, I... Oh, right, because there's that discussion of, like, on the one hand, there's the Christian world, and on the other hand, there's the pagan world, as he understands it. And mm-hmm. those are, like, the poles of the book. It is definitely the case that it is... It remains an open question where he puts Jewishness and Judaism in his, like, racial religious schema of the engine of American whaling. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he just doesn't think Jewish people go out for whalers. Which, weird. I, sure? Yeah, no idea, man. Like, I don't think we've met any Jewish whalers. No, definitely there have not, there have not been, as far as I can recall, any actual, like, Jewish characters in this book. Yes. Um. Well, uh, 
you know, if that ever shows up, fascinating. I yeah. don't remember it. So at the very least, when I initially read this book, I was not, I will say, I was, I think I was less uh, putting together his sort of dynamics of race and religion in a way that made me think, oh, I should be on the lookout for Jewish characters because fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. I was, you know, very into, like, the Gnosticism and so on and, like, you know, what Ahab was up to. Um, so, you know, we'll see if that shows up. I think there's a decent chance it just doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Some it, mysteries there's... do not get answered. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's let's move on to the next chapter. Yep, um, last chapter for the day. Yes. Chapter 93, The Castaway. Yeah, uh, so this, this chapter, man, this chapter is a land of contrast. This chapter is a lot, and it's kind of an important chapter, uh, like, thematically, and this character is not—the character is Pip, uh, yeah, so who is, like, the ship's boy. Yeah, we've—we're, like, one of the ship's two boys. <laughs> yes, there's also Doughboy. <laughs> yes, but the Pip is—we've uh, we've seen him briefly before, uh, because— uh, the, the, I mean, in this chapter, he makes reference to, oh, you've met, seen Pip before because he was, uh, the, he was the, the boy playing the tambourine in the, like, party scene. Yes, um, there's also Yeah, there's also a, a chapter which, him... like, alludes to the idea of him drowning, right? Or... Yeah, well, oh, I'm going, I'm going back to find this, because this is okay. the bit where we talk about the... Yes, I found it already. It's the end of the chapter, Knights and Squires, which, as you may remember, we enjoyed a lot on this podcast. Um, but yes, it ends... Uh, which one? There's two chapters called Knights and Squires. Right! Right! It is the uh, one... It's chapter uh, 27, just before the chapter Ahab, which ends with, um, you know, yet now federated along one keel, what a set these isolatos were. And in our... Anacarsis Clute's deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth, accompanying old Ahab and the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Black little Pip, he never did. Oh no, he went before. Poor Alabama boy. On the grim Pequod's foxhole, ye shall ere long see him beating his tambourine, prelusive of the eternal time when sent for to the great quarterdeck on high. He was bid to strike in with angels and beat his tambourine in glory, called a coward here. Hailed a hero there. And here's where we shall see him called a coward. Yes. Uh, so, Pip. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think we explicitly said it, but it was in the passage Ben read. Pip is black. And, and from Alabama. Yes. And, uh... Although he's actually, I think, mentioned to be uh, born in Connecticut? Yeah, I actually think that... Hmm, yeah, that's, hmm, that's interesting. I'm not sure what's going on there. Yeah, because it mentions his, uh, native Tolland County in Connecticut. I kind of think that Oh, you think Alabama is purely... I think that there is purely an association in Ishmael's mind between black people in the South. Oh, you might be right, especially given what Stubb says in this chapter. So, okay. Also, we, fuck Stubb. Yeah, we should be clear. This chapter's very racist. It um, has a, it has a lot of weird racism. Like, it's it's the kind of racism where it's trying really hard to insist that actually black people are cool, but the way it does it is wildly racist. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I don't think that this is quote-unquote weird racism in the sense that, like, okay, the central kind of thing that he claims about Pip is that he's jolly. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's a is... very standard, like, "Quote unquote positive stereotype racism about black people." Going yes, on. Uh, but but certainly as has always in this book, it's like doing stuff. It's not. Yeah, there's there's but, uh, stuff that happens from that, like talking about uh, like the concept of like brightness. Yeah, we'll get into that. Okay, so so uh, 
he explains that when the boats are lowered, um, at least some people remain on the ship in the role of shipkeepers. And, you know, broadly speaking, they're not any, like, worse whalers than anyone else. But if there is, like, a weak link on the An crew, unduly slender, clumsy, or timorous white in the ship, that white is certain to be made a shipkeeper. Yes, and uh, Pip is one of these. Pip is kind of, uh, you know kind of a coward um, yeah well or, we'll see what we'll see how that gets played out because that's actually happens in this chapter yeah but so Pip but, is kind of not seen as be like he's a perfectly hard worker but he's seen as being kind of unreliable and the, and meanwhile on the other hand doughboy the other ship keeper is i think seen as being kind of just uh is seen as being quote by nature dull and torpid in his intellects yeah so so this leads into a whole paragraph where, at length, Ishmael describes Pip as being bright. And I, yes, I am uh, genuinely a little confused about what actual personal qualities he means by this. Because, okay, he, sir, first of all, he certainly means jolly. Yes, he does mean, like, Pip, though over tender hearted, was at bottom very bright. And then there's a whole bit about how, with the, like, natural racial, racial jollity of black people that's just stop yeah okay so he definitely means by calling pip bright he absolutely means that he's jolly and that is racist and always he also means like brilliancy like he shines in some way yeah and so what i'm trying to figure out is does he mean intelligent because he he... does say he is contrasting him here with doughboy who is dull by nature dull and torpid in his intellects so i I think he might mean the connotation of the word bright where it means intelligence but i I think it's at least like pip is clever and he's he's young so he's clever and like eager to learn and interested in things and like as well as being obviously jolly Uh, but i think that pip is supposed to have like yeah a bright intellect even if it's like untutored and maybe is like precocious as a as like a young boy a young man rather than like you know, Ahab's kind of genius. Yeah, but he also, at length in this paragraph, just, like, develops the idea of brightness in a very literal way. Yes, yes. Uh, The idea, basically, oh, you might not think it's possible for something to be both black and brilliant or bright. Well, look at ebony, like the literal precious wood. Look at, uh, you know, um... Look at the idea of of putting, like, a, a, a clear gem against, like, a black backdrop. And it's yeah. just all very, like... Weird and colorist. Like, I think he may also be literally implying to us that Pip has, like... Luster? Lu- shine? Luminous skin, yes. Yeah. Um, and, but I think part of it is also that he's developing towards this metaphor at the end there where he talks about, like, you know, um... Uh... The, you know... Uh, but Pip loved life and all life's peaceable security, so that the panic-striking business in which he had somehow unaccountably become entrapped, as say, whaling, had most sadly blurred his brightness. Though, as ere long will be seen, what was thus temporarily subdued in him in the end was destined to be luridly illumined by strange wild fires that fictitiously showed him off to ten times the natural luster with which in his native Tolland County in Connecticut he had once enlivened many a fiddler's frolic on the green— and then goes on for this, like, elaborate, like, metaphor of, like, the sky becomes his tambourine. He's, you know, become somehow, like, mythic, like, brilliant in a way that is be- is directly compared to the idea of putting, like, you don't show a diamond to its best effect against, you know, um, 
you know, a normal background, but rather you put it against an intentionally dull background and use it a gaslight, an unnatural light to give it a special luster. And so what he describes is, then come out those fiery effulgences, infernally superb, then the evil blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But let us to the story. And I think that's a really important passage, especially because he says earlier, Sorry to be quoting so much. They're just they're around the racism. There's a lot of really cool language. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say that I, I think it is. I think this is inextricable from the racism. Oh yeah, I no, think it is. In this metaphor about a diamond, there are like two elements here that are causing the diamond to have this fiery effulgence. One is the like black backdrop, and that is very obviously a racial thing here. But then there's also the unnatural gases, and that's not, I don't think, anything to do with Pip personally. No, that's, that's the circumstances that Pip is thrown into. Yeah, that's the things that are going to happen to Yeah, him. I mean, I think, I will say, I don't quite agree that the black, that the background is actually meant to be, um... Black, black skin. I think, I think it's, I think he has flipped the metaphor. It's like, it's a, it's an, it's a, it, I think he's playing on that. That's where it comes from. Then he flips the metaphor around because since he's been arguing that actually Pip's like a black jewel, but you know it's it's weird. It's it's not good. But he's flipped that around to now he's talking about jewels and diamonds. Now he's talking about how a diamond against a dull background will shine in this way, and so he's sort of processed through this inversion of the metaphor where now Pip's brightness is being compared to a clear diamond that things can shine through so that the weird illumination and weird backdrop he is put against produces this particular effect in his brilliancy, which brilliancy has already been established is black. Okay, so you're saying that by the end of this paragraph, actually, Pip is the diamond. Yes, Pip yeah. is absolutely the diamond. Yeah, the end, all right, because, I think I see what you're getting at. And the specific, the specific statement here is that, you know, in the clear air of day, suspended against a blue-veined neck, the pure water diamond drop will healthful glow. That's talking about the idea that Pip, in his native land in Connecticut, on land, not menaced by whales or the ocean or Ahab or Stubb, would be, you know, that would be his most healthful glow. He'd clearly be happy and alive and love peaceful things. But if you take him out of that and you place him among the ocean, among everything that's going to happen in this chapter, it's not Pip's sort of natural state and it's not his healthy state, but you see this weird brilliance be brought out of him. Let's let's talk yeah, about... Well, there's one more line from much earlier that I wanted to say, which is... Um, an event most lamentable and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. So Pip is becoming a herald of the ship's destiny. Yes, you are and totally I, right. Let's, I want to get to the part where the thing actually happens. Because yes, I yeah, feel yeah. like, I honestly almost wish we had gotten to the end of this chapter and then come back to this stuff. Because I feel like we just talked in detail about what happens to Pip and we haven't said what it is. I mean, I think that the order of it is, I mean, yes, I think that might have been more helpfully explanatory. I think that working out this metaphor before getting to the events is how uh, Melville wanted the effect to land. Yeah, no, I suppose you're right. I, I just, uh, I, I want to get going. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so what actually occurs in this chapter is that um, uh, one of Stubbs' oarsmen is, like, injured uh, in the last events with the, the Ambergris affair. Yeah, he just sprained his hand. It's nothing major. Yeah, yeah. So, but it just means that Stubb is down an oarsman and they put Pip into his place. Yeah. Um, and the first lowering is 
fine. Fine, but Pip is very nervous. Uh, the second time he lowers in Stubbs' boat, um, the whale, like, smacks the boat right under where Pip is, and Pip jumps out in... Yeah, he just terrified leaps out of the boat, which, frankly, I fully understand. Oh, yeah, no, I think it's a very understandable reaction, but it's kind of disastrous because, okay, first of all, not only is he, like, out of the boat, which is not yeah. good for him, but he becomes entangled in the whale line, and so uh, uh, Tashtigo ends up, like, very resentfully asking, like, should I cut the line? Um, yeah, because, so, specifically, Pip is now tangled in the line, the whale is running, so Pip is being dragged through the water ahead of the boat, the boat's being pulled along, Pip is, like, being strangled and drowned at the same time, and Tashtigo realizes that his harpooning is about to go to naught, because they'll have to cut Pip free. Yeah, um, so, so Tashtigo asks, cut? And, uh, Stubb says yes. Uh, Stubb... So specifically says, damn him, Cut! So they, they cut the line, which saves Pip's life, and... So the whale was lost and Pip was saved. Yes, and uh, immediately everyone yells at him. Yeah, like, the in he gets pulled back on board, and all of the sailors are absolutely furious. Um, and Stubb allows all this to happen, and then it finishes. And then he very businesslike and, you know, in his normal, like, half-joking way, curses him out as well. Yes, and it... it, it yes, so it just... Like, poor Pip. Jesus Christ. Yeah, they also give him incredibly useless advice. Because, yes. like, it's it's, stra it's stressed that the advice is, you know, basically, never jump out of the boat. Except that there are certain situations where you will save your life by jumping out of the boat. But other than that, never jump out of the boat. And it's very much like, this is all clear, like, experience and time spent whaling and stuff that Pip would learn in theory by being involved in this and surviving a long time, but because he has ruined this one lowering from everyone else's perspective by his uh, by his cowardice, um, they're being like, no, you stay in the boat. Okay, maybe sometimes you jump out of the boat because I'm not going to be like absolute about it. You stay in the boat. Everyone's real mad. Yeah, and uh, the the Stubb kind of realizes that these attempts to like explain the the specifics of like how you should estimate when you should jump out of the boat are not working not at working all. and so he just says all right uh you know here's my rule if you jump out of the boat we are not going to pick you up yeah and also says uh something incredibly racist to pip yes uh which basically literally says uh whales are worth a lot more money than you would be as human chattel so yep. we can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you a whale would sell for 30 times what you would pip in alabama so bear that in mind so yeah and you know uh, Ishmael agrees with us that this is a pretty fucked up thing to say. Yep, yep. Hereby perhaps Stubb indirectly hinted that though man loved his fellow, yet man is a money-making animal, which propensity too often interferes with his benevolence. And, like, the roundabout way that Ishmael is saying that, where he's like, you know, maybe, maybe Stubb just wanted to, you know, make it clear that this is a money-making enterprise and people are going to act on the habits. It's like, well... I think it's a little bit more than that, Ishmael. This I is mean, a I think this is one threat. I think this is one of those cases where Ishmael by a kind of ironic understatement is making yes. it clear that he thinks this is pretty No, I, I think you're like, right. Like this is equivalent in some ways to that stuff about like uh the Lord Warden cheating those poor yeah, ancient yeah, whalers yeah. where it's like, Oh, you, this might seem a little objectionable and yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. he means by that, like, this is a fucked up this thing. This is to a do. fucked up thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oh. 
But we are all in the hands of the gods, and Pip jumped again. Yeah, so there's another lowering, and Pip jumps out of the boat again, and this time he does not get entangled in the line, and so, uh, Stubb makes good on his word and leaves him. Yep, and there is, like, a, um, an insistence, uh, by, you know, by Ishmael that had Stubb really abandoned him? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two other boats behind them. But they saw other whales, and they turned off aside. So, ultimately, Pip gets left just floating in the middle of the ocean. All of the boats vanish over his... You know, when you're floating in the water like that, your horizon is very small. It's like a couple waves. So he's... And then you can see beyond that, like, the sky. But unless a boat is close by, you can't see it. So he quickly became completely isolated. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Ishmael makes it clear that it's not necessarily impossible to literally stay afloat. Now, in calm weather, to swim in the open ocean is as easy to the practiced swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore, but the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity, my god, who can tell it? So, like, this is a, technically speaking, like, technically speaking, Pip is not, uh, totally lost here, but this is, like, a psychologically... disturbing experience and you know also on some level it's like well he could probably swim here for a long time but he has absolutely no guarantee that anybody is ever actually going to come back yeah yeah he uh ishmael mentions um mark how would mark (laughs) how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides like nobody swims away from the ship in open ocean because the possibility of being stranded there is just atrocious. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um. And the um, there's also uh, a certain sense that like um, the other boats maybe saw Pip go over but didn't think it was their problem because uh, people who jump out of the boat, uh, oarsmen who jump out of the boat like that, are called cowards and are absolutely despised in the fishery. Yes. Uh, so when when there was discussion of Pip called a coward here, that's because of this. Yes. Uh, now, Pip is, in fact, saved. Uh, basically, by chance, the ship encounters him. Um, yeah. Uh, but he is traumatized by this experience. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to, before we get to that, there's one very nice metaphor in 405 that I, on sorry, I just said on page four or five, you have a different copy. Uh, the the phrase about out from the center of the sea, you know, uh, Pip turned um, his head to the sun, another lonely castaway, though the loftiest and the brightest. And what's interesting there is that Ahab is usually compared to the sun, uh, a singular figure utterly isolated from all else that is nonetheless radiant and constantly moving through this, moving on its circuit. Yes. Uh... On its own sort of path. And I think it's interesting that Pip isn't like, directly it's not pip is the sun it's pip is isolated like unto the sun and pip is rendered mad yeah i want to read yeah i want to read the paragraph about what pip like oh yes please do uh so and and this is specifically you know ishmael says that like he he's recovered to the ship but basically he is like mentally disturbed afterwards uh, went about the deck an idiot such at least they said he was uh and and describing the experience he's had The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather, carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman, Wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps, 
and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, god-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought which, to reason, is absurd and frantic, and, weal or woe, feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his god. So, like, like he witnessed the infinite at the bottom of the ocean. Well, he, I mean, he physically didn't go down. Right, right. He was, right. He was, but, but he, yes, like, the, there's spiritually... the idea that he spiritually, and in some cosmic sense, he just experienced the infinitude of sky and sea, and it broke him. Yeah, and, like, in some sense, he experienced, like, ancient entities that live under the ocean coral insects yeah that that god omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs is such a bizarre phrase like heaved the colossal orbs and the firmament of waters has to be referring to like genesis and the creation of the of the sun and moon right yes i think he is basically suggesting that there are some kind of entities at the bottom of the ocean that were present and participated in creation yeah god's foot upon the treadle of the loom yes like the idea that oh you know what this is i think this is you know very elliptically this idea of like everything coming from the oceans which i think has appeared before in this book and is like a not unpresent idea in 1850s yeah. Like, this idea of the oceans as the primordial source of things, and that Pip has been in strange communion with that by being cast away like this. And for that, his, his uh, you know, crewmates call him mad. They're, you know, he's presumably, I mean, I have to imagine raving about this when he's brought up on board. Yeah. About having, you know, about the nature of the world and all, you know, things coming from the ocean. And it's entirely possible that this specific, like, idea of multitudinous, god-omnipresent coral insects, which I think is referring to the idea that coral is like an anthive, that it's created by, you know, insects of some kind, which uh, I don't know if the anatomy of coral was known at that time. I, I would imagine not, just because coral is made by, like, microorganisms, right? Microorganisms that form a shell around themselves, and then the shell dies, and that becomes the base of the coral when it sort of stacks up, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the idea that coral is constructed like a beehive or an anthill, uh, I think that is the kind of coral insect that's being described. And they are multitudinous and god-omnipresent in the sense that, you know, coral appears all sorts of places and you never see the insects. Um, and I think, but I think that this is being used as sort of a, a figure for this idea of him raving about having seen like the workings of the deep. And yeah, the phrase, and I'm saying again because it's so good. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom is such a powerful phrase. Yeah, like yeah. seeing the working of the world. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, just gonna roll back a little bit. Um. A living and ever-accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove the Pequod's own. Yeah, so I, I think there is there is a sense here in which, like, Pip is a person who, in some sense, through this, like, brightness, whatever the hell exactly that's supposed to mean, was, like, uniquely, or not, maybe not uniquely, but especially suited to, like, receive this revelation. And then he had this experience, which, like basically turned him into like a mad prophet <laughs> yeah i mean i think that 
the character he's most immediately comparable to, albeit in a very different position, is Ahab. Someone who witnessed terrible things about the nature of the ocean and the deep through his own personal trauma and has ever hence been mad. But where Ahab's madness is this hidden engine, Pip speaks it. Yeah, and also, yeah, it's interesting, like, Ahab was also, like, abandoned floating on the water for yes. an extended period of time. And apparently, the last paragraph of this suggests that so that Ishmael will also have this experience. For the rest, blame not Stubb too hardly. The thing is common in that fishery, and in the sequel of the narrative, it will then be seen what like abandonment befell myself. So, yeah. Um... Well, you know, that shattered sequel that will, uh, uh, might prove the Pequod's own is very strongly implied within this story of Pip. And yeah, I think that I think that the dynamic of comparison between Pip and Ahab is really fascinating. This idea that they both had to some extent the same revelation or the same witnessing or were both shattered in the same way. And Ahab's response to this is in one way and Pip's the other. Yeah. And also the idea that perhaps it is an unnatural way to be. It is something that is created by these conditions um, you know, such that Pip in his you know, brightness shines out in a way that would not be natural were he in a healthful and normal uh, place. I would even argue that part of the argument here is that it is unnatural to be upon the ocean. It is dwelling in strange places and witnessing uh, the infinite, which is to say that, you know, when you cast off the lee shore, that howling infinite is the ocean. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think you were right. Um, I think it's also very interesting, though, given that comparison to Ahab, and also given the part earlier in this chapter where, like, the thing that happens to Pip is described as, like, drawing out, you know... Fiery effulgences, infernally superb. Yeah, some kind of, like, hellish display. Yes. It's very interesting that when he's actually talking about Pip's experience and, like, what it does to him... Uh, he talks about it as divine and like the, yeah yeah the celestial thought exactly um it, it's very uh i mean i think this is kind of of a piece with the thing that we've seen with ahab where like it seems as though like god and the devil are like have some are, are identified with each other exactly yeah and and like this you know this this plays into this kind of the the gnostic themes that we've talked about in this novel i don't think it's at all unreasonable to say that in this moment pip achieves a kind of gnosis um, yeah i think that's perfectly fair um also the phrase indifferent as his god that if that god is the workings of the ocean the terrible deep that you know is utterly uncaring to man um and the idea of an indifferent god is certainly not, shall we say, traditionally Christian. Yeah, yeah. And um, and Ahab, to some extent, uh, if God is indifferent, he hates him all the more for it. Yeah, yeah. If if the whale truly does not care, per, did not do it out of malice, but simply did it, I don't think that would make Ahab hate Moby Dick less. Yes, like, I think the one very clear distinction here between, uh, you know, Pip and Ahab is that Pip is not, like, Pip does not have a directed response to this, you know? Yes, Pip... He has just been overcome by this experience. Yeah, I think the comparison of him to a jewel and its shine is important also because, like, you know, speaking of the idea that he's becoming, I mean directly says looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell um 
Pip is like becomes a almost an art piece, like an, an entity that exists but doesn't actually do things. Yeah, he's like, displaying the nature of the world. Ahab is directed. Yes, like the the even the fact that like Pip is speaking seems to be something that is kind of like he can't not do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know he he saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him man mad but ahab who perhaps you know who certainly had his revelation and is described as crazed ahab crazy ahab he doesn't speak it that's a major part of him until his speech on the pequod where he can infect everyone with it no one calls him mad everyone just thinks he's kind of upset that his leg got eaten yes so yeah that's um that's pip that's like the character of Pip in his most like central element of the plot. Yeah. God, this book is fucking weird sometimes. You think? <laughs> I don't know. You 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 think maybe the multitudinous god omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs might be a little weird? Well, I also just mean that like this chapter is simultaneously like this. This is like thematically central to the book the the like the language of this is absolutely beautiful the like metaphors are, are fascinating at the same time this is also one of the like most straightforwardly and boringly racist parts of the book yes and like it's <laughs> yeah i mean it's because it's because in my opinion the problem here is that the way he wants to use the figure of pip is very one-dimensional yes like but... it's not that it's not the end result is pretty fascinating, but to go into it, he needed Pip to be, like, naive and, like, good, but also prone to certain failings so that, you know, um, so that the Pequod's crew would dismiss him, because he's, this isn't a Gabriel situation. Yeah, no, it it's very clear that, uh, you know, Pip is a very, um, like stock character yes and and like um he is not like a major character in this narrative yeah. i i would be surprised if he even like shows up again after this chapter i mean there was the implication I, again i cannot remember this there's the implication that he drowns before the climax okay yeah that might happen but but um like you know he he is it is interesting to compare him thematically to Ahab, but fundamentally he is not actually like anywhere near as central or developed. Yeah, exactly. yeah, no, you're you're totally right. It's he is made more interesting by the comparison to Ahab, but it's primarily a comparison that is set to enrich Ahab. Yes. Ahab is a central figure. Pip is an ancillary one, which. Um, I do know that in that one Moby Dick musical that we're probably going to listen to or watch for this podcast sometime, apparently there's a 30-minute uh, spoken word poem about Pip. I'm sorry, 30 minutes? Yes. Holy apparently, shit. Apparently, it's not a high point of the musical. Yeah, that doesn't sound good at all. No, but... no. That Look, I've been warned away from this musical, but I'm really looking forward to it. I just, like, I am amazed because 30 minutes is, is yeah, you long could read, for a spoken word segment. You could read every word written about Pip or indirectly talk, touching on Pip, even the racist ones in this book, and you would not get 30 minutes. Wild. So, 30 um... Minutes. Yeah, so apparently Pip has really struck some people's imaginations. And, you know, to be clear, he's struck ours. Like, this is a really affecting chapter, and you do feel a lot of sympathy for poor Pip. But he's also, 
primary he's a figure he's a he's a stock character who goes through a particular thing to have a particular effect on the narrative and to have a particular metaphorical impact yeah yeah uh it's it's telling that most of the story of pip is not actually like things pip did or his personality until after his you know mind has been his soul has been drowned but uh more this extended metaphor about putting him in a particular situation to make him shine to his best effect yeah pip's pip's hopes and dreams don't enter into it yeah like the things that pip actually does in this chapter are in fact jump from the boat which is like you know the, the understandable cha- but it is not good whaling yes <laughs> yeah pip yeah, pip does something understandable but kind of bad almost gets killed by it and then his mind breaks because he witnessed the fullness of the deeps and the foundations of the waters etc and that's all very interesting in the story but it doesn't make pip a developed character yeah yeah (sighs) all right well i i think we've run out of this episode yeah yeah this has all been fascinating um yeah really fun to be like eh don't have so much to say about kings and whales uh oh here's the duke being a jerk oh let's make fun of the french existential horror (laughs) yes all right what tune is it you pull for man a dead whale or a stove boat